is clear about what's happening this week. Um, Wednesday night, ABF is going to resume, our Wednesday night ABF, followed by small groups. That starts at 6.30 right here. It's also on uh, live stream. Uh, and so a reason I want to announce that is so that you'll start coming. Uh, but also for those of you online or those who will be online, uh, we do have a live stream of that, followed with a uh, Zoom small group uh, that meets on Zoom, obviously. Um, and even if you don't understand how Zoom works, it's pretty simple. If you get a link, you can click on it, and it should get you through what you need to know. Um, that link I will be sending out this week within the next couple days. So if you want to join us for that, I know some of you are uh, not able to be here or for whatever reason just want to stay home, and that's fine. That's why we have that Zoom group, so that you can have some connection even if you're not here physically. So that's coming this week. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to announce too, uh, and I'll say more, you'll get an email this week before next Sunday, but we are really low on junior church volunteers right now. So again, if you can help us in that way, I will also be sending out a link for the sign-up for that. We'd really appreciate it if you consider signing up for that. And finally, teenagers, if you're listening or seeing me now, tonight is epic. Uh, We are meeting tonight, and we will be having our Christmas uh, get-together tonight. It's a little late, but that's what we're going to be doing. All right, those are my announcements, and now I want to get started with communion. We have an opportunity today to be together to not only... Whoa. Woo. Am I on still? Oh, yeah. Is that me? What Was I off the, the rest of the time? Am I on now? Why do I do this? Uh, Am I good? All right, I'm good. All right, okay. Well, I'm not good, but anyway. All right, well, let's move on. John reminded us of that. All right, anyway, we are here today, and we are going to be having the opportunity uh, to worship the Lord through communion. And and I really want to emphasize that today, that as we do communion together, as we take the Lord's Supper, this is not just a simple um, exercise we do just for the sake of doing something together. Uh, it's not just about juice and, and a cracker. It is about worshiping Jesus together, and it's about remembering his death. It's about remembering the act of love that he showed for us through his death and ultimately through his resurrection. And we remember the gospel as we come together to remember communion. And so I want to make sure that as we do this, this is an act of worship, it's an act of fellowship, it's an act of coming together to give glory to God. And that's what we do today as we come together uh, for communion. Each month we do this. Uh, And this morning, I want to read from the book of Isaiah. Uh, We don't normally do a lot of extra reading other than 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll get there. But I want to read from Isaiah 53. Uh, It's a passage that many of us know, but I think it's a passage that many of us need to be reminded of. Uh, And that is the great sacrifice that was given uh, as Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant, as he would become known through Isaiah 53, really did suffer for us. Suffered in a way that we deserve to suffer, and yet he paid the penalty for us. And that's what I want us to remember this morning as we take communion together. Isaiah 53, I'm going to read the whole chapter if you'll follow along with me or listen along. Who has believed... What he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not." 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and yet and he was afflicted, yet he Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By, op- by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. With his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, that he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong." Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This chapter was a prophecy foretold of what the Messiah would do. Who the Messiah would be. And as I read that passage, I hope you thought about the fact that what is over and over again is the key point here is that this Messiah, the suffering servant who is Jesus would one day, as Isaiah writes this, would one day be stricken down, be killed for our sins. This is really, in a way, showing the incredible mercy and grace and love of God, but it sure isn't fair. (laughs) Jesus didn't deserve this. Jesus didn't deserve to have to bear all of this on himself in our place, and yet he chose to do that because of his great love and mercy and grace. And today, as we have an opportunity to take a cup and, and, and some bread and remember the body that he broke for us and the blood that he shed for us so that we could be forgiven, that he is literally paying the punishment, he's appeasing the wrath of God on our behalf. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. And when we take the juice and we take the bread and we remember those things, that the, the body that he broke and the blood that he shed, it, it, it's not meant just to be a religious exercise, but it's to remind us that what he did was for us. It was for us so that he would receive glory. And it was for us so that he could show his love, mercy, and grace to people who didn't deserve it. If anything, we could say that life isn't fair and thank the Lord that it's not. Because Jesus took the unfair and in some ways unjust punishment for our sins, our transgressions. He, by his stripes, we are healed, even though we were the ones that deserved the stripes. And so as we think about that this morning, we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we know that, that Paul knew that it was important that the church continued to do this, continued to do what we call communion, take the Lord's Supper, And so, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And he reminds us of what happened, what Jesus did before he left. And Jesus wanted us, 
his followers then and his followers now to remember the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And so that's the opportunity we have today. And so what we're going to do is, I'm just going to give everybody a few minutes while there's a song playing. I just want you to take some time to consider, to think about, to meditate upon what Jesus really has done and what he really means to you. Like, this is, we can't just take him lightly. He's not just a name that we say when we're at church once a week, but he is someone who has paid the very penalty for our sin that we deserve to pay. And so, before we take the bread, before we take the cup, which we'll do together, I just want us to take some time to really reflect upon what really happened, what really God did for us through Jesus. And that might change the way that we view ourselves, the way we view God, the way we view how we live, and that all of those things might be reflected through that as we consider what Jesus truly did for us. And so would you just take a few minutes, uh, Andy, if you want to, while you're thinking, start getting the, the cup prepared as far as peeling off some of the plastic, you're welcome to do that. But would you just reflect upon what Jesus has done for you before we take them together? Again, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul reminds us why we do this. For I received from the Lord which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just take the bread. And we remember the body that, that God was given. He gave himself a body to be broken for us. But then not only that, but blood that was to be shed for our forgiveness. And so Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 11, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you join me as I close our communion time in prayer and Pastor Justin will come up and begin the sermon for today. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to come together to remember your death, the sacrifice that you gave for us. God, we deserved your punishment. We deserved your wrath because of our sin, because we turned our backs on you. And yet, you sent Jesus to not only live as a man, but to die as a man. And we want to praise you and thank you for the resurrection as we know that death has no power any longer. 
But yet at the same time, we remember the great sacrifice that was given for us, and we don't want to take that for granted. Would you help us to live in a way that reflects what we're remembering today through communion? And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin 2021, we're starting a new sermon series through the book of Habakkuk. So if you want to find that in your Bibles, that would be a good thing to do as we get started. We start thinking about the prophet Habakkuk, we need to ask some kind of introductory questions about who he was, when he ministered, and those kinds of things. So we'll take some time to do that before we dive into his message in the scriptures. So who was Habakkuk? All we know from scripture is that he was a prophet. What's a prophet? Simply put, a spokesman for God. Many times we misunderstand biblical prophecy because we misunderstand the role of biblical prophets. We think of them as tellers of the future, and truly they do that sometimes. But their most basic role could be better described as covenant enforcers. They stepped up to call God's people to repent of their sin, to remind them of the gospel, of what God had already done for them in the past, and of how God expects them to live in the Mosaic law. And they also brought challenge to God's people to believe God's promises for the future. Habakkuk was an enforcer of the Mosaic Covenant. When did he live? When did he prophesy? When did he write down this oracle or burden as it's referred to in the first verse? We're given no specific date for his prophetic ministry, but clues in the book suggest that it was written during a fairly narrow date range. It seems likely to me that he received and recorded this encounter with Yahweh, the God of Israel, sometime between the years 609 and 605 B.C. Let's explore some historical background information. You remember King Josiah? He died in 609 B.C. He's remembered mostly for a revival of faithfulness he led during his reign. After a written copy of the Mosaic Law, or at least what we know of as the book of Deuteronomy, was discovered in the temple in Jerusalem. This tells us that for some years, think about this, for some decades, generations even, the priests were not studying God's law They were not teaching the Scriptures. The kings were not reading or following the guidance of the Scriptures. And that means the people of Israel more broadly were certainly ignorant of the God who had chosen their family to be His agents of blessing in the world, rescued them from slavery in Egypt, established them as His special people, His treasured possession, He called them, and He called them to live distinctly holy lives for His glory and for the good of the world. 
And in their ignorance and abandonment of their God, they gave themselves to idolatry. King Josiah's discovery of the Scriptures and his desire to enforce them, calling the people to repentance and faith in Yahweh, the one true God, swept across the small nation of Judah. But the impact of this so-called revival was short-lived. After Josiah was killed in battle against the army of Egypt in 609 B.C., his son, Jehoahaz, took the throne. King Jehoahaz only reigned for three months. And in those three months, he did enough to earn that repeated assessment of most of the kings of Judah. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, the Pharaoh who had killed Josiah, captured the 23-year-old Jehoahaz, imprisoned him, installed his older brother Jehoiakim as king of Judah, and forced King Jehoiakim to raise taxes in Judah that would then be paid to Egypt. Thus, God's people find themselves ruled by Egypt yet again for the next four years. And Jehoiakim's reign brought worse corruption and violence to Judah. One commentator has summarized this really well, drawing from Jeremiah's descriptions. King Jehoiakim's corrupt vassal relationship with Egypt and later with Nebuchadnezzar affected every area of life in Jerusalem. He killed the innocent who opposed him and refused to pay poor laborers. Under his administration, the prophets and priesthood were corrupted in in adultery and abuse of authority. The king sent assassins who killed the prophet Uriah for prophesying that Jerusalem would fall. He burned Jeremiah's handwritten prophecy in his fireplace as a threat against him. It's probably during this time that Habakkuk protests to his God. Part of the shock expressed by God's prophet, as we'll see in just a minute, is that the rediscovery of God's law during Josiah's reign has had so little impact on the people. As the king goes, so goes the people. Could a young king who does evil in the sight of Yahweh for only three months take a whole nation down to the very depths of depravity? Or had the wheels begun to come off even before Josiah's death? It's likely Habakkuk lived during the days of Josiah's revival. He probably witnessed the highest spiritual point of the history of Israel. Then, like stumbling over the edge of a cliff, everything descended into madness. How quickly people can radically change like the Jerusalem crowds praising Jesus on Palm Sunday, and then within five days, many of the same folks shouting for His crucifixion on Good Friday. The book of Habakkuk is not like other prophetic books. It's not shaped as a message the prophet was to deliver to God's people. There is no thus says the Lord in the book. Instead, we get a unique glimpse into a conversation a personal encounter or interaction between the prophet and God. We see some of this give and take in other prophetic books, like Jeremiah, most noticeably, who would have been a contemporary with Habakkuk. 
Instead, the message of the book of Habakkuk is the whole conversation, the whole encounter. We'll see that God does indeed intend his responses to Habakkuk's protests and complaints to serve as God's responses to others who might feel the same way Habakkuk does. Habakkuk the prophet seems to represent the faithful remnant of Israel. His complaints, his protests, represent the minority report of those among God's people who were seeking to remain faithful to the covenant. And so God's answer to Habakkuk is God's answer to the righteous remnant, those who are struggling to trust God in the midst of a very difficult time. Three more introductory comments, and we'll dive into the text. First, notice that this conversation, this dialogue recorded in these three chapters is all in the form of poetry. Similar to the book of Job, we are dealing with poetic reflections of real dialogue. The message comes through the poetry. That means we have to deal with figures of speech, the rhetorical devices, and not think quite so literally as we are accustomed to think as Westerners. Second, as we look at the big picture of the book of Habakkuk, it's got a very simple structure. Habakkuk 1, 1 to 11 records Habakkuk's first protest or complaint and God's response. Habakkuk 1, 12 through chapter 2, verse 20 records Habakkuk's second protest or complaint and God's response. And then finally, chapter 3 records Habakkuk's prayer of praise. The simple structure reveals a very important aspect of the message of the book, which we'll elaborate on in a few minutes. A healthy, intimate relationship with God looks like this. One writer says it like this. We ought to let honest words out. We ought to let God's words in. And in the end, through our wrestling and through the receiving of God's words, we ought to turn our complaints into praise. Finally, let me say a word about the use of the word protest in my sermon title and as a description of Habakkuk's address to God. The English dictionary defines a protest as an expression or declaration of objection, disapproval, or dissent, often in opposition to something a person is powerless to prevent or avoid. In 2020, the word protest was applied to many different events or gatherings, from violent marches with people carrying assault rifles to more peaceful marches with people carrying signs instead of guns. By the end of the year, the word protest was even being applied to church services and gatherings of folks singing Christmas carols. What were people opposing in these protests? Unchecked violence? some of it perpetrated by people entrusted with the authority to serve and protect, perceived government overreach, a contested presidential election, public health measures that threatened citizens' constitutional rights, and a host of other issues. Christians participated in these protests. Is that okay? What is the nature of our protests as God's people? When we protest our circumstances, when we protest against people and authority structures, aren't we really protesting against God? 
Is that okay? Habakkuk did. But rather than railing against circumstances, rather than complaining to other people, he took his protest to the only one who can actually do anything to change our unhappy circumstances. Let's see what we can learn from Habakkuk's protests and God's responses. So let's dive in. Habakkuk's first protest comes in verses 1 through 4. Follow along as I read these verses. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Notice that what Habakkuk has written is described as an oracle or a burden, some translations say. The whole conversation, as it's been poetically recorded for us, was something that Habakkuk saw. So there's a visionary element to Habakkuk's experience. Well, he'll use the term vision in chapter 2, verse 2, where the Lord commands him to write it down and make it plain. That seems to be characterizing the entire conversation as a visionary experience Habakkuk had with the Lord. Habakkuk has been praying about this situation for some time, it seems. He has watched as the people of Judah have deteriorated into greater degrees of violence and wickedness. That Habakkuk asks the Lord how long and why shows his intimacy with the Lord. These are lament questions, complaints, protests against God's apparent lack of responsiveness to his prophet. He almost accuses God of refusing to answer. He does imply that the Savior has not saved. The wickedness is visible. It's public and it's plain for all to see. And the prophet has been sickened by it. He can take no more. He even blames God for making him see the rampant wickedness, as though God were rubbing his nose in it. And he accuses God of idleness, destruction, violence, strife, contention, conflict, hostility, rampant wickedness. That's what Habakkuk has had to keep looking at in Judah. Sound familiar? Hone in on verse 4 for a moment. This is where we see evidence that Habakkuk's outrage is that the rediscovery of Deuteronomy, God's law, the Torah, during Josiah's reign had no lasting impact. So the law is paralyzed. That's a vivid image. God's law, frozen, paralyzed, having no effect. That is what it looks like from Habakkuk's vantage point. Before Josiah... The prophets had appealed to God's law in their repeated chastisement of the people. The prophets appealed to God's law. They knew it. They had kept it. 
they had held it in their hearts. But part of the reason for the people's lack of response in those days seems to be due to ignorance. Nobody, not the priests, not the kings, knew God's law. The prophets drew from it, but nobody else seemed to care. Now the law has been rediscovered. There was a fervent celebration of the feasts. There had been exuberant expressions of national repentance. Now Habakkuk looks around and sees nothing but violence and rampant ungodliness. Sound familiar? Habakkuk adds, and justice never goes forth. The word for justice refers specifically to judgments, as in decisions in legal or criminal cases. And in Israel, legal cases were supposed to be decided on the basis of the Mosaic law. Judgments are simply the application of the Mosaic law, the application of the Scriptures. And Habakkuk doesn't see any evidence of that happening anywhere. Judah's government, the king and the courts, were supposed to apply the law of Moses to the everyday lives of the people, as well as applying the law of the Moses the law of Moses in handling crimes. Habakkuk doesn't see it happening. Habakkuk's protest is motivated by corrupt government. Sound familiar? Instead, Habakkuk sees wicked people overturning and abusing righteous people. The faithful remnant, the righteous few, preserved by God in Judah, and Habakkuk, of course, would have counted himself as among their number, were being persecuted, abused, and slaughtered, both figuratively and probably literally in some cases. In this sense, justice was being twisted or perverted. Sound familiar? Ultimately, this line gives us our first clear foreshadowing of our great Savior. In the scene described by Habakkuk, the horrific scene of the utter overturning of justice, we get a glimpse of how the salvation Habakkuk longed for would actually come. Shockingly, God would bring justice, salvation for His people through the worst act of twisted human justice in the history of the world. Jesus, the only perfectly righteous man, would be surrounded by the wicked, overcome by the wicked, sentenced to suffer the death penalty for crimes he did not commit. Habakkuk could not imagine a scenario where God would use injustice to bring about justice. But that is, in a sense, the answer God gives to him anyway. But before we look at the Lord's response, let's ask the question, shall we protest with Habakkuk? Said differently, do you pray like this? Does your personal praying have a component of lament or complaint or protest? Let's ask the question a little bit differently. How do you assess your relationship with the Lord? How do you know that your relationship with God is healthy? How would you assess any relationship? I wonder if you might base it on whether there's any conflict or not. I've heard a spouse sometimes comment on the quality of their marriage by saying, we never fight, 
And I think usually that's supposed to mean our relationship is good, healthy. But is that really a good measure? Are any of our human relationships ever completely devoid of disagreements or conflicts, at least for very long? I'd say only the shallow ones. More important is how we handle the conflict when it comes. We might think protesting to God, complaining to God, shows a lack of faith. However, a person who lacks faith is a person who doesn't pray at all. In fact, if we refuse to talk with God about what we honestly believe and feel, that may be evidence of a lack of faith. We don't believe He can handle it. We don't believe He cares. We don't believe He's really listening. It is because Habakkuk believes what Abraham said about God at the end of Genesis 18.25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Habakkuk believes that he will. This faith spurs Habakkuk's protest. Commentator Heath Thomas puts it this way. Lament prayer is not God-denying language, but God-affirming language that reveals a radical faith in God and a firm understanding of our dependence upon Him for all things. A pastor by the name of Eric Raymond has addressed the relational aspect of Habakkuk's complaint thoughtfully. He writes, The conflict in the relationship is merely an occasion for relational intimacy. And he's talking about human relationships at this point. Through honesty and compassion, the relationship goes to deeper levels. It is a bit counterintuitive, though, but conflict, when handled properly, can help serve the relationship. He goes on applying this insight to the book of Habakkuk specifically. And I'm going to quote him at length because I found his reflection so helpful. The prophet Habakkuk is one example of this type of mature, intimate, and healthy relationship with God. But when you start reading the book in chapter 1, you might think he's on the JV team of spirituality. However, as you read the book and get into the stream of the narrative, you realize that this guy is swimming in the deep end. Habakkuk shows us that you can complain to God without complaining about God. It's a key line. Are you trying to keep your relationship sanitary and safe? Have you bought the lie that this is what mature Christianity looks like? We are people that have it all together. Our shirts stay starched, pressed, and perfect. This is not reality. We live in a mess of a world. We are always getting soiled, wrinkled, jostled, and stained. Yet, we come to our Father trusting and treasuring Him as we are, unburdening our hearts in prayer. A mature relationship with God is not sanitary and starched. It is lived in, worn and stretched. It is not superficial or free from conflict. Let's be honest. We have all kinds of issues with God, ourselves, and others. By issues, I mean our sin. But because of the gospel, we can be honest about these things with God. We come to Him remembering who He is and what He has done. We come to Him in prayer, asking Him to help us to understand. We live by faith in a good God while we live in a complicated world. 
God uses this to deepen our relationship with Him. That's what we see in the, the broad scope of the book of Habakkuk. Can you look around at what's going on in our world today and be honest with God about how you feel? I'll be honest with you this morning about my own wrestling. I've been worn out in recent months, exhausted in a way that I have never known. And I used to be a stay-at-home dad who had plenty of late nights with a little one-year-old and two-year-old baby girl. What's wearied me now more than anything else, I think, has been Christians who have little to no patience or compassion toward other Christians who are experiencing fear. A fearful Christian is not an oxymoron. When a Christian experiences fear, he or she needs brothers and sisters who will walk with them through their fear. They are not helped by siblings abandoning them in their time of need or criticizing them, whether to their faces or to other people. I'm also tired of the rhetoric that this stupid mask is somehow a symbol of fear. Just because people choose to wear masks in certain settings does not mean that they are afraid, necessarily. Brothers and sisters, please stop making assumptions about your brothers and sisters. That kind of judgmentalism is sinful. And I'm not talking to everyone. And I'm issuing a warning to everyone, however, because I know that this critical spirit, we can all easily slide into it. And we can be guilty of tearing down our brothers and sisters rather than helping them, encouraging them, building them up with our words. With Habakkuk, I have cried out violence to the Lord a number of times. I have pleaded with the Lord and will continue to do so to end this pandemic, not because I fear getting sick or because I fear my loved ones getting sick. This pandemic has thrown the world into a tailspin, and I'm nauseated from the ride. The violence I have seen is the same violence you've all seen. It's displayed for us on the media and on social media so graphically and so pervasively. How can we not, as God's people, cry out to the Lord in desperation and ask with the Lord, with Habakkuk here, ask the Lord with Habakkuk, how long? The political polarization that we see in this country has been brewing under the surface and behind the scenes for years. There is blame for this on all sides. The hearts of all unbelieving politicians, like all unbelieving humans, are deceitful above all things, the prophet Jeremiah tells us. That includes the current president of this country, and it includes whoever occupies the White House in a few weeks, unless the Lord grants him repentance gives him a new heart, and saves him from his wicked ways. Treachery, deceit, cheating, lies, half-truths, and manipulation of the system of government in this country, that is what we've been witness to. 
And that is what Habakkuk saw in his days. If the policies we approve of as Christians are championed and even achieved, enshrined into law, and enforced by legal authority through ungodly means, through a betrayal of the democratic processes we all should celebrate, do we really believe that God approves? Justice goes forth perverted indeed. Now, I may be wrong in my perceptions and my observations, but I will be honest about where I stand, not only with the Lord in prayer, but with you, my family, as well. But it's this gut-level honesty that we are encouraged to express with God in prayer throughout Scripture. One writer says it this way, If the prayers of Scripture are anything to go by, complaint and lament are part of a healthy spirituality. God does not want our performance in prayer. He wants our honesty. So then, what is the Lord's response to Habakkuk's honest protest? The Lord's unbelievable response. It surely wasn't what Habakkuk expected. Look at verses 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold... I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Notice that the Lord answers Habakkuk using some of the same words Habakkuk used in his protest. Habakkuk had asked the Lord why he made him see iniquity and why he, the Lord, looked at wrong without doing anything about it. Here, the Lord commands Habakkuk to see and to look. Instead of the violence and injustice within Judah, the Lord instructs Habakkuk to widen his gaze, to look beyond his current unhappy circumstances. What you might not be able to see from your English Bible is that all of this is actually directed to a plural audience. The command is not just for Habakkuk the prophet to look and see, but for y'all to look and to see. I take this to be an address to Habakkuk that implies that Habakkuk's concerns in his protest represented the concerns of the righteous, faithful remnant in Judah. So the Lord intends this response to be passed on to that faithful remnant. The key answer comes in the second half of verse 5. For I am doing a work in your days, in y'all's days, that you would not believe if told. Habakkuk has asked how long God was going to do nothing about the wickedness in Judah. 
The Lord responds by saying, I am doing something, but when you're told, you're going to have a hard time believing. Notice that this is the first time that faith comes up explicitly in the book. Habakkuk 2.4 is the key verse in the whole book. The second half of that verse summarizes the essential response of God's people for circumstances like Habakkuk was facing. The righteous shall live by his faith. Pastor Ken will highlight this important verse next Sunday. But that is ultimately the solution Habakkuk and all of God's righteous people need. The righteous remnant must live by faith. Sound familiar? But here, the Lord indicates that the specific message that must be believed by the righteous remnant is going to be hard for them to believe. Even the prophet Habakkuk is going to protest this response initially. He's raising up the Chaldeans. God, Yahweh, the Lord, is raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to use them as his rod of judgment to punish the wickedness of Judah just like he had done with the Assyrians in judgment against the northern kingdom Israel a little over a hundred years earlier. What's fascinating about this response is that they had indeed already been told this about a century earlier. The prophets Micah and Isaiah both made it quite clear that Judah was going to be exiled to Babylon. Well, it's clear that the majority of the people of Judah didn't believe those prophets of old. Now, Habakkuk gets the same message, perhaps a bit more directly. It's important to add here, for our benefit today, that we must remember that this is always true. In every nation, in every government, it is God who raises up those in positions of authority. Whatever the human processes and procedures whether it involves the assassination of a previous ruler, the bribery of officials to install a particular individual in a particular position, a nepotistic sharing of power within a family, regardless of qualifications, or whether a person gains a position of authority by means of a free and fair election, or by means of a fraudulent election. In every case, God raises them up for His own purposes. As the prophet Daniel said, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And as the apostle Paul wrote, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. In verses 6 through 11, the Lord sketches a horrifically poetic description of the Babylonians. Historically, The fulfillment of this would come relatively soon. Habakkuk probably lived to see it. If we're right in viewing Habakkuk's encounter with the Lord recorded in this book as occurring sometime between 609 and 605 BC, then Nebuchadnezzar would be marching his Babylonian troops into Judah for the first time in 605 BC after conquering Egypt. That was when he abducted Daniel and his three friends and conscripted them into political service for the Babylonian Empire. A second invasion and deportation would follow in 597 B.C., but the final blow would be dealt in 587 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, obliterated the temple, and basically emptied the city of its inhabitants. 
Why is this word so unbelievable? Why wouldn't the people of Judah more broadly believe these announcements? Well, as so often in the history of God's people, both in ancient Israel and in the modern church, false prophets rise up to deceive. As the Lord was announcing this same impending judgment to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah points to these other prophets in Judah. As we read in Jeremiah 5.12, They have spoken falsely of Yahweh and have said, He will do nothing, no disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. Certainly it's understandable that the people of Judah would want to believe those messages rather than the messages of judgment that Jeremiah and others had already announced. Beware of so-called prophets today, brothers and sisters. Jesus and the apostles warned repeatedly of their presence and the danger they would pose to believers toward the end of history and throughout the church age. And their false messages are all over the internet. Now, I'm not going to go through all the details here of the Lord's description of the Babylonians. But let me draw your attention to a couple of specific statements that connect back to Habakkuk's protest. Recall how Habakkuk had said in verse 4 that justice never goes forth, and justice goes forth perverted. Look at verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Babylon has a system of judgment and justice. It's certainly not based on the word of Yahweh. Rather, their pursuit of and definition of justice is not bound to or shaped by God's true justice. They are a law to themselves. Here we see the pride, self-determination, arrogance, and perceived autonomy of Babylon. Sound familiar? Then in verse 9, we see Habakkuk's protest of violence echoed. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. This may be the straw that breaks Habakkuk's back. Judah is guilty of terrible violence, and Babylon is guilty of even worse violence. How can the perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, true God work through such violent people? As we'll see next week, Habakkuk doesn't get the connection initially, but as readers, we need to see it right here. God's perfect justice demands that the punishment must fit the crime. Therefore, it's fitting that the violent would be punished with violence. Now, I wonder if you empathize with Habakkuk at this point. Isn't it uncomfortable to think about our loving God as violent or as using violent means to accomplish His purposes. Shall I ease the tension for you? Habakkuk sees the Babylonians as worse sinners than the Jews. He doesn't have a category in his mind yet that God can use sinful means to accomplish His holy purposes. 
As frustrated as the prophet is with the wickedness of his countrymen, his protest to God was hopeful for another solution. Perhaps he was hoping that God would change their hearts. Isn't that what he promised to do in the new covenant? Jeremiah makes that most clear, perhaps, and Habakkuk's encounter with the Lord comes earlier than those specific new covenant promises. But even Deuteronomy, the book King Josiah had discovered and read and sought to enforce among the people just a few years earlier. Even Deuteronomy points to the need for God's people to have a new heart. In the context of Moses prophesying that the people would be rebellious and that God would respond by sending them into exile... He also prophesied a restoration after judgment. And what was the pivotal foundational promise? Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Maybe Habakkuk was hoping that that is how God would answer. But if that was his expectation, he had missed the context where that promise is specified for after God's judgment of exile would be experienced by the people. More than this, however, for us, we must grapple with the reality that God uses violent, sinful means to accomplish His greatest purposes. Isn't our salvation accomplished through violence? Isn't the cross a violent instrument of torture? Wasn't the murder of Jesus the most horrific miscarriage of justice in the history of the world? Everything the wicked Jewish leaders did to Jesus, everything the wicked Roman soldiers did to Jesus is described by the Apostle Peter as whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place in Acts 4.28. Jesus volunteered to become a victim of horrific violence to provide forgiveness for our violence and to bring an ultimate end to violence in this world. We long for the consummation, for the completion of Jesus' great work of salvation, the final end of violence. In the meantime, we lament. In the meantime, we cry out. In the meantime, we protest the violence of this world, and we ask, how long, O Lord? How then shall we respond to the Lord's word? We'll see next week how Habakkuk responds. Spoiler alert, he protests. But what about us? What about now? How do we hear the Lord's word here in the context of our suffering, in the context of political upheaval, in the context of racial injustice, in the context of a pandemic, in the context of conflict within the church between siblings, about masks, and about vaccines, and about public health measures and government limitations or restrictions. Pastor Eric Raymond sets the stage 
We seem to have more opportunity today to fret over world events. Some Christians seem especially prone to trying to read every headline into a biblical prophecy. Generation after generation tries to overlay the newspaper with the Bible to see them line up just so. This is often a frustrating and discouraging fool's errand because it does not look at the big picture and lean heavily upon what is known for certain. Instead, many lean on the uncertainties and find themselves frightened, fatigued, and frustrated. Some pastors, and I am not in any way intending to criticize other pastors of other churches, some pastors currently are digging into the book of Daniel and into the book of Revelation to try to help their flock navigate our troubled times. And certainly both of those prophetic books can help us a lot with our response to the world around us. However, to miss the forest for the trees, seeking to identify the nature of the mark of the beast and whether or not it could be coded into a vaccine or associated with ID cards or implanted chips, the identity of the Antichrist, which nations might line up with the ten toes of the dreamed-up statue in Daniel chapter 2, whether the coronavirus is a sign of the end times, whether we're on the precipice of a prophesied one-world government, economy, and or religion, while missing the major point of the book of Daniel, which is that God's people would trust God's absolute sovereignty over the apparent instability of the world, or of John's revelation that Jesus has won the great victory over all his enemies and he will bring history to its proper conclusion at its proper time. Missing those main points to focus in on those details, those debated details, could have disturbing effects on Christians' lives. The exact opposite impact that those books are intended to have for God's people. Keeping the big picture in mind as we study those kinds of books can help Christians avoid the sensationalism and the sensationalistic misinterpretations of those books that are rampant on the internet. So, we together find ourselves in the book of Habakkuk. God's answer to Habakkuk is God's answer to us as we struggle with a world in turmoil around us. God is not inactive in the chaos we see. His invisible hand of providence is ruling every twist and every turn around us. The devil has no independent authority, and neither does Governor Cuomo or President Trump. Whatever sin... Whatever injustice, whatever ugliness that unfolds because of the decisions of politicians or voters is being managed and ruled and shaped and turned for the good of God's people and the accomplishing of God's glorious purposes. We may not see these good things with our physical eyeballs. Instead, we must believe the unbelievable. We must believe that God is doing a work through this pandemic. We must believe that God is doing a work through foolish government spending. 
We must believe that God is doing a work through the election of a president that surely involved deception and manipulation. We must believe that God is doing a work through the evil that we see around us. Whether the evil in our own homes or in our own society. As we'll see next week, the righteous shall live by his faith. I've already hinted at some ways this first conversation between Habakkuk and the Lord points to Jesus. But we need to say more. Jesus prays like Habakkuk. While Jesus was dying on the cross, he cried out in protest with the most profound why question ever asked. Quoting David's lament from Psalm 22, 1, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Such a prayer fits the tone and the posture of Habakkuk. Jesus faces the greatest injustice of history and is bearing it in his own body. And he shouts to God in his agony and asks, why? If there was any question about whether or not Habakkuk's protesting questions were sinful, we certainly can't think that way about Jesus. Instead, as we've noted earlier, this kind of questioning in the face of intense evil, intense suffering, reflects the deepest intimacy met with heavenly silence in this case. The deepest intimacy a person can have with God may very well include questioning Him and struggling with what you see with your physical eyeballs. When you ask these questions, don't think that you're losing your faith. Ask them. Ask them with all the intensity and all of the passion that you feel. Don't run away from God with your questions. Run to Him. He's shown us He can handle them. And He welcomes them. We are invited to protest and to pray like this. Habakkuk received a verbal response. It didn't satisfy him. Jesus was met with heavenly silence for our sake. But in our praying, in our protesting, we ought not focus so much on the possibility of an answer. As Heath Thomas writes, Answers to prayer are really only useful if we think that knowing why something is happening in tragedy or being able to explain it is going to somehow help the situation. But in fact, it may do little. Answers to prayer may come, but it is the anticipated encounter that is truly necessary. His living response to the petitioner. True prayer leaves the answers to God. True prayer presses toward the person of God in communion with Him. Moreover, the second half of Habakkuk 1.5 is quoted in the book of Acts in a very interesting way. Here, as the Lord answers Habakkuk's protest, He comments on the unbelievable nature of the work He's already begun to do. In order to address the awful wickedness of Judah, the Lord was already raising up the Babylonians, empowering them to become a powerful empire, enabling them to conquer other nations with violence. And soon the Lord would bring them into Judah to execute God's vengeance on the sinful people of Judah. 
In Acts 13, the Apostle Paul proclaims the gospel to Jews in Pisidian Antioch. As he came to the climax of his sermon, showing how Jesus' resurrection fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, he warns the Jews listening regarding their response to his preaching. In Acts 13, verses 40 to 41, we read, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As in Habakkuk, the Lord calls the people to believe the message. In Habakkuk 1.5, it seems like an announcement that the people will not, in fact, believe. But we need to read it rhetorically. We need to recognize the Lord actually challenging the people to believe. To Habakkuk and the righteous remnant of the Jews, the Lord was indicating that the appropriate response would be to believe the announcement of judgment that was coming. But the Lord rhetorically indicates how hard it will be even for the righteous remnant to believe. The Apostle Paul recognized that rhetorical point and pulls the warning from the Lord and addresses it to his audience. The only appropriate response to God's Word, whether in His announcements of judgment or of salvation, is to believe. Unfortunately, Paul's audience on this occasion would not respond well. A week later, Paul pronounces judgment on the Jews of Pisidian Antioch as many of the Jewish leaders of that city openly opposed their preaching. So Paul turned his attention to the Gentiles of that city. In Paul's days, the work of the Lord, the work the Lord was doing was to save sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. Paul had just offered these Jews forgiveness for their sins and justification which they couldn't receive by seeking to obey the Mosaic law. The only way to escape the judgment of God is to believe the message, to trust in the resurrected Jesus. For Habakkuk's audience, the Lord was likewise indicating that the only way for Jews to remain a part of the righteous remnant was to believe the message, to trust the righteous judgment of the Lord that was coming upon them as a nation. Paul recognizes that the righteous judgment of the Lord has come against Jesus in the place of sinners. And so the only hope for Jews and for all people was to trust in that act of judgment to bring them ultimate salvation. In Scripture, God's salvation always comes through judgment. Noah and his family were saved through God's watery act of judgment upon all the rest of humanity. The people of Israel were saved from slavery in Egypt through God's ten acts of judgment upon the nation of Egypt. Even through the judgment of the Babylonian exile, a remnant of righteous Jews were preserved, saved by God as He enabled them to endure with faith in the promises of future restoration through the work of the Messiah. So it is now. All who trust in Jesus 
are saved from slavery to sin, death, and Satan through God's act of judgment on the cross. God punished His sinless Son, condemned His innocent Son, judged His perfect Son, and through that terrible act of judgment, God offers forgiveness of sins, release from deserved condemnation, and eternal freedom to live a life pleasing to God to all who will believe. Habakkuk was tripped up, as we'll see next week, by this response from the Lord. He struggled to understand how God could execute His righteous judgment against unrighteous sinners among His own people by working through the unrighteous sinners of Babylon. But this is the way. God brings salvation to the Jews and to the world through the unrighteous acts of unrighteous people. To paraphrase one of the angels at Jesus' tomb, it was necessary for the Savior to be delivered into the violent hands of sinful men. Jesus suffered violence at the hands of sinful men to bring salvation and forgiveness and eternal life to sinful people. And in doing so, Jesus ensured the final end of violence and injustice. To quote Heath Thomas once more, God defeats violence through becoming the victim at the cross. This victimization is not a defeat, however, but a victory over violence through nonviolence. Now, we who trust in Jesus are the righteous remnant, and we are in the position of Habakkuk, lamenting, protesting about the violence and wickedness we see around us. As we continue our study of this book, we will find that the only proper response for God's people in this position is to trust and to wait. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess our longing, longing for the end of so many things. And Father, you are the one who knows the end from the beginning. And so we have nothing to do but to trust you. And so we call on you. We don't pretend to have the great wisdom to know what choices we need to make. We don't pretend to have the skills we need to navigate the chaos and the deception that's coming at us from all angles. We only cry out for mercy in the midst of these days. We only cry out that you would build our faith in these days and that we would trust you and that we would hold faithful to your word. I pray, Father, that we would all grow in our hunger, our recognition of our desperate need for your word in 2021. Would you feed us? Would you nourish us? Would you keep us during this year? We don't pretend to know what's coming down the pike. We don't pretend to know anything. We claim our ignorance and we call on you who knows everything. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Protect us from despair and discouragement in these days. I pray for my brothers and sisters who might be full of fear for whatever reason. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen them.
and that you would hold us all steady in the midst of our shaking world. And we pray, Father, that you would hold us together, help us to pursue unity with each other, help us to lock arms and link arms, to stand firm against the onslaughts of the evil one. We need each other, and we need your grace. And so we pray you would pour it out abundantly. Let us count our blessings and find that we don't have enough fingers and toes, even amongst us all, to count them up. Thank you for being so good to us in the midst of dark and difficult days. We know that you'll stay that way throughout the year. We want to honor you, Lord. We want to live for you, no matter what. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.